0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And today I'm joined by a special guest. Joining me today is Shannon Tiazzi, The Diplomats Editor-in-Chief and resident Chinahan. Great to have you back on the show, Shannon.
1: Uh, I always love doing the podcast on Kit.
0: I know. And you're always uh, the person I want to have on when we're discussing anything related to China, really. Um, and for our listeners, uh, that's what we'll be focusing on today. Um, and specifically, we'll be focusing on a very interesting reaction by one country in particular, Turkey, to the situation in China's Western Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Um, so just by way of background, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, but beginning in 2014, um, China began initiating a set of policies that led to, among other things, the involuntary internment of as many as one million Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other minority groups, uh, primarily of the Muslim faith, in re-education camps, uh, where they've been subjected to everything from um, total indoctrination under the party and basically been discouraged from practicing their faith or exhibiting any kind of outward signs of being pious Muslims Um, and the world has been slowly learning about the scope of this uh, primarily through the course of a lot of investigative reporting that was done in 2017 but also other open source techniques including satellite imagery showing the extent of these camps But I think what's been interesting with this is, um, as this has played out, which is, uh, in my view at least, one of the more uh, morally distressing things that's happening today in China and possibly anywhere in the world, um, a lot of national governments around the world have been quiet for a variety of reasons. Um, The biggest reason in many cases being their economic relationships with China. And just last week, we had one prominent country uh, break with this trend. Uh, the Turkish government released a pretty scathing statement uh, underlining the plight of the Uyghur in, in Xinjiang. Um, and the reason I'm really glad to have Shannon on is because she just wrote, I think, what is the definitive explanation of why Turkey decided to release this statement when it did. Um, and of course, uh, you know, by way of background, Turkey is obviously a Muslim-majority country, um, the um, of the leadership there under uh, Erdogan has been uh, actively pursuing an agenda of Islamization within the country. It's a leader on the global stage, um, even within the uh, OIC. So, Shannon, tell us a bit about where, um, how we should contextualize uh, the Turkish statement. Um, and also, you know, what did the Turkish statement actually say?
1: Sure. Um, so I'll start with a few quotes from this statement, uh, because obviously, there are statements and then there are statements and this was a very strong uh statement that the the turkish foreign ministry actually released um it talks about practices violating the fundamental human rights of uyghur turks um and even calling <laughs> this ethnic group uyghur turks is uh, in and of itself designed to ring alarm bells in china because of course the whole heart of this project is that China wants the Uyghurs to define themselves as Chinese uh, in the way that the Chinese Communist Party gets to define what that means. Um, So this statement, it talks about torture, political brainwashing, um, and it calls these internment camps, which it describes in some detail, a great shame for humanity. So this statement is not mincing any words um, talking about this policy. Uh, What's interesting is why this is coming out now because as you mentioned this is not a new policy um it's been ongoing for years and there have been international media reports about it since 2017. so why did it take until 2019 for turkey to come out and release this sort of statement Um, and it seems that the proximate trigger event um was late last week, around February 8th, there started being rumors on social media that a prominent Uyghur musician, Abdurrahim Hayit, had died um, in detention uh, or in one of China's re-education camps. There have been various reports. Um, and this musician was supposedly sentenced to prison because of a song he wrote that praised The Uyghur fatherland, and that upset the powers that be in China. Um, And as I wrote in my piece, I won't go too far into it, there's actually a strong connection between Hayyid and Turkey in particular. He had performed there abroad, and he was seen as sort of bridging um, the Uyghur specific community with the larger. Turkic culture that the Uyghurs are part of, um, and also other ethnic groups in Central Asia, that Turkey has kind of positioned itself as the defender of this Turkic identity historically. Um, So that seems to have really pushed the Turkish government to take a stance. The rumors of the death of this specific figure, which were later rebutted, I'm sure we'll get into that, um, and then the public backlash that was happening in turkey really sort of uh ignited this sort of pan-turkic nationalism that's always simmered under the surface in turkey and uh, that would include a strong stance on weaker rights
0: right so can you help us make um a little bit more sense of uh the chinese reaction which i think was uh also interesting and you know we can also get into how china tried to actually um push back on the idea that this uh this musician was dead
1: yes um so, there's kind of two pieces of the Chinese reaction. One is a strong pushback against this specific rumor um, that Hayit had died. And we actually saw what a lot of people are calling a proof of life video. Um, so, China is a kidnapper who is holding the, this man, which is, you know, frankly not that far removed from the truth, um, where Hayit, what appears to be Hait, appeared. On camera in a video that was posted by Chinese state media on Twitter, and said, and conveniently this statement has uh, English subtitles so the world can understand. You know, I am Rahim uh, um I am alive. The date is February 10th. So directly rebutting the rumor that as of February 8th he had died. Uh, I am in being investigated for crimes against the Chinese state and I am in good health. I have never been abused. Um, whether the convincing or not, China has a long history of forcing dissidents and other people that it has detained to make forced confessions um, on camera, which are then used for propaganda purposes. And this certainly seems like it fits that mold. Uh, it's a very odd and specific statement for someone to make of their own free will, uh, including the date. But it certainly seems to have rebutted the specific charge that he had died. And it seems like China is using that one uh, error in this to rebut the broader gist of it, when really there's just, you know, there's one paragraph on Haiti, but the vast majority of the statement is about China's policies uh, against the Uyghurs more broadly speaking these re-education camps or internment camps um yeah so we also had a more general statement from the chinese foreign ministry and from the chinese embassy in turkey repeating the justifications that they have for this policy that these are vocational centers designed to train people for gainful employment that they're necessary for china's de-extremification effort to prevent terrorism and so on uh but the the video was the really interesting thing that set china's response apart
0: yeah so i mean i think i think uh, you know you tied that into china's overall um response to the international community's growing concern about what's happening in xinjiang i mean they've kind of taken it head-on and basically reframed what you know the world is describing as internment camps to uh, effectively re-educate and indoctrinate uh, China's Uyghurs as these voluntary vocational centers. You know, we even had footage released on state media of people singing songs and, you know, showing that life is all fine and peachy within these facilities. So they're not trying to deny effectively that these kinds of facilities even exist. And of course, you know, there are the justifications that this is being done to kind of combat the so-called three evils of terrorism, separatism, and religious extremism um, in, in Xinjiang. But I think, you know, the question now with this Turkish statement is what happens next? And of course, you know, we're recording this podcast just days after the statement. So um, I think pretty much the state of play right now is uh, the Turkish statement and then the Chinese response. But I think uh, for China, the the unsettling question must be that will this Turkish statement open the floodgates on other Muslim countries, uh, potentially Muslim countries in Asia, including countries like uh, potentially Malaysia um, or Indonesia, um, beginning to sort of reevaluate their own positions on uh, how they should publicly, at least, treat this issue as it begins to, great, uh, you know, gain prominence among their publics as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think that is what China is going to be the most worried about, um, which is the Turkish government, particularly. President Erdogan has staked out a role uh, for Turkey as a leader in the Muslim world, and particularly in the sort of pan-Turkic world, which would include a lot of the Central Asian states as well. Um, So the risk is that if Turkey really starts to to put action behind its statement, and the statement included a call for the international community and specifically the United Nations to act to force China to end this policy. Um, That would be incredibly concerning for Beijing. On the other hand, Turkey has always had a very unique connection to the Uyghurs that it's going to be hard for any other country to replicate. because there have been Uyghur refugees coming to Turkey from China since the 1950s when the PRC consolidated its control over the Xinjiang region. So there's a long history of a Uyghur community in Turkey, um, this sort of we are all broadly Turkic cultures, um, brotherhood, sense of fraternity between Turkey and the Uyghurs. That's something that a country like Malaysia or Indonesia they they just don't have that very visceral sense of cultural connectivity. Um, so in terms of there being a huge wellspring of domestic pressure forcing other governments to take action, I think Turkey is probably the best hope for that. Um, and, and what's interesting is that that sentiment hadn't really found expression in government policies until now, until 2019. Um, and the the factors that have kept Turkey from speaking out on this previously are still at play. As you mentioned earlier, a lot of it is economic, but also, you know, geopolitical and diplomatic reasons for this relationship. So I could see the Turkish government basically sitting on this statement saying, you know, okay, we issued this strong statement, we can point to that when domestic criticism starts to bubble up, but we're not really gonna do anything else because we don't wanna jeopardize this relationship. And that would be the ideal situation for China as well, um, and I think that's a real possibility, provided that China doesn't overreact and start economically retaliating against Turkey. Because as we've seen, Erdogan does not take kindly to uh, other countries trying to punish him economically for policy decisions. Uh, so we we could see this, you know, kind of following into nothing, or we could see this really escalate into a spat between Turkey and China.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma because on one hand, as you said, you know, China does want to deter other countries from following on the Turkish example. But like you said, they might be better off just calculating that Turkey has a particularly unique case here of having to manage domestic opinions and the uh, dominant justice party in the country, the AKP, has to particularly, you know, stick its neck there in a way that other governments might not really have the incentive to. Um, So I think that's... um, I think that's an interesting uh, angle on all this, too. Um, you know, I mean, maybe we're doing this podcast a little bit backward, but it would be good to also hear a bit about um, some of the recent developments in the in the China-Turkey relationship. I know that it's a very um, interesting one, uh, particularly on the defense side. You know, there was that canceled deal uh, between China and Turkey for um, a missile defense system that gave NATO some pause a few years ago. But of course, there's been a lot of... Um, a lot going on on the side of the Belt and Road Initiative and and other things. So, uh, do you want to just give us a quick overview on uh, the extent of Turkey's uh, economic relations with China?
1: Sure. Uh, so first, a little bit of context. Um, there's there's really a broader trend underway in Turkey. It's been labeled sometimes the Eurasianist vision or idea um, that turkey needs to be less reliant on the west uh, particularly nato and the united states its traditional partners particularly on security affairs and that turkey should seek instead to expand partnerships um, to the, in the region to turkey's east which you know would start with central asia and expand all the way through to china um, and around the same time that this was happening is when china unveiled its Belt and Road Initiative, which Turkey, obviously, given its geographical location as, in a sense, a literal bridge between Asia and Europe, Turkey is really in prime position to be a key leg of this. So these two visions, Turkey reaching east and China reaching west, uh, really meshed well together, you know, starting around 2014 um, when you know, around the time of this defense deal that you were talking about as well. And there have been ups and downs, um, but certainly there's a sense on the part of the Turkish government that China is a reliable partner, uh, particularly as the U.S. relationship starts to falter. Um, Last year, we saw, you know, a huge economic spat with Trump threatening tariffs on Turkey. Uh, We see continuing issues over the U.S. policy towards Kurdish fighters in Syria, which makes Turkey very nervous. Uh, So in that sense, Turkey is is looking to China as a potential partner and very much invested in this relationship. And we've seen this in terms of literal investment. China has been pursuing the same sorts of sectors that you often see talked about with the Belt and Road, um, transportation infrastructure. Uh, I think it was around 2014, 2015, a Chinese company completed the Istanbul Ankara High Speed Railway. Um, China has also acquired Comport in Istanbul, uh, which is Turkey's third largest port. There's also energy cooperation, discussions on China constructing Turkey's third nuclear power plant, um, plans to boost tourism, Chinese banks opening branches in Turkey, e- e-commerce cooperation. Uh, and this really took off, especially over the past two years. Um, Erdogan attended the 2017 Belt and Road Forum. And by 2018, when we really started to see serious frictions in the U.S. Turkey relationship, uh, the number of Chinese companies in Turkey had topped 1,000. Uh, so this has been gaining speed over the past two years. But at the moment, um, you know, it, there still aren't as many leaks as as links as there could be. Um, Turkey has been pursuing a lot of connectivity projects in the Caucasus, particularly the Trans-Caspian International Transport Corridor that look like a very natural fit with the Belt and Road. But there hasn't been much cross-investment that's involving both Turkey and China really linking their visions. So we're kind of at this turning point, I think, where there's been a lot of momentum so far, but there's a lot of untapped potential. And it'll be interesting to see if if this Uyghur issue actually manages to derail the China-Turkey relationship.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think, you know, we'll have to see how uh, how Turkey moves on this. I mean, I can I can very easily imagine Erdogan trying to score uh, further points at home by actually bringing this up in a personal meeting with, uh, uh, you know, possibly Xi Jinping or other senior uh, Chinese leaders, which would be, uh, you know, quite remarkable given where we already are with this statement. Um, But, you know, sort of one closing thought I have with this is that, um, you know, on the prescriptive side, uh, so many groups, um, civil society organizations, um, Uyghur activist groups are trying to figure out how best to mobilize uh, global action um, on the issue of Uh, the plight of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And I think this Turkish example is actually quite interesting of how effective uh, simply reporting and raising awareness can be um, in a country like Turkey uh, in kind of pushing the government's hand uh, towards issuing a statement or, uh, you know, raising this on the diplomatic agenda between uh, China and that country. So I wonder, you know, if we'll see that dynamic, at least, um, you know, maybe even in the countries that don't have the same kind of uh, diasporic link between the Uyghurs and their own populations, um, if we'll see that become a more of a trend. I mean, especially I think for many leaders with these kinds of populist tendencies, um, you know, speaking out on an issue like this can be um, appealing for, if nothing else, domestic opportunism. You know, I'm, I'm imagining a leader here like Mahathir, who isn't necessarily worried about his own reelection or kind of future stakes, kind of um, staking his neck out, uh, you know, so I think that'll be something to uh, keep an eye on.
1: Yeah, and I think that is really the fracture to pay attention to. Uh, on the one hand, you have a lot of governments who have put a lot of stake in fostering a good relationship with China, and they don't want to jeopardize that. Um, but governments uh, like Turkey that have sort of made their name by fanning the flames of populism and nationalism and um Particularly Muslim majority countries, where this could be a very real driving issue, uh, the persecution of these Muslim groups specifically for their faith—you know—that's a—that's a pretty serious problem. Um, so you have to balance basically your the domestic framework that keeps your government afloat um, with the foreign policy framework that is keeping your government afloat, and in Turkey. Erdogan and his government had been airing toward this side of the foreign policy framework. They have been conspicuously silent on this issue really since 2015, where there are some massive anti-China protests in Istanbul that actually broke out into violence targeting Chinese tourists and businesses. Um, and since then, Erdogan had offered assurances to the Chinese that he was going to tamp down on uh ill-minded influences or evil influences in Turkey and that he wasn't going to, you know, do anything to foster separatism, which uh, in China's mind would mean anything to advance the cause of Uyghur rights. Um, but that's, that's changed with this statement. So again, we're just going to have to wait and see to keep an eye on what this actually means in practice. Is Turkey going to do more than just issue one statement and let it go? Um, Or is this going to be the beginning and the end of the renewed interest in the weaker cause?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Shannon, uh, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Git.
0: Absolutely, my pleasure. And uh, for listeners, I'll uh, add a link to Shannon's recent article uh, on this very issue in the description, so you can click through to that to um, read a bit about this issue in a bit more detail. Um, but yeah, so, uh, thank you so much for listening. And, uh, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes or Google play, um, we'd really appreciate if you could do that really helps get the word out about the show. And if you're not a subscriber yet and you don't want to miss future episodes, um, I'd recommend doing that so you can keep up with us. So, uh, thanks a lot for listening and we'll be back next week with more.